Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about toxic positivity. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today have returning Dr. Kimberly Spence. Dr. Spence uses she, her pronouns and has served as the coordinator of educational and training programs for the Center for Autism and Related Disabilities, or CARD, at the University of Central Florida since 1999 and as the clinical director of autism support services for specialized treatment and assessment resources, which is a private forensic practice since 2017. She has lectured nationally and internationally regarding treatment, specialized therapeutic intervention, and the creation of specialized sexuality education programs for individuals with autism spectrum disorders, or ASD, for over 20 years. So Dr. Spence, thank you so much for being on the podcast once again. Thank you, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. And I also have returning Jocelyn Reyes. Jocelyn uses she, her pronouns and is a bilingual crisis counselor slash victim advocate at the VSC. Jocelyn obtained her bachelor's degree in criminal justice and her master's in human services. She recently moved down to Florida over a year ago and is a huge animal lover. So Jocelyn, thank you for coming back onto the podcast as well. Thank you for having me again. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think it's one that you know, as I was researching about it, I was starting to become more and more aware of this issue of toxic positivity. And I think that it's such an important topic to discuss. So this week, we're talking about toxic statements that well-intentioned people may be saying to the survivors in their lives, the effects toxic positivity and suppressing emotions can have on individuals and how we can reframe these statements into validating and supportive ones. So with that, um, as always, I like to start off with definitions. So how would you define toxic positivity? I can go first. Um, My definition, just to be short and concise of toxic positivity, is not allowing yourself or others around you 
to truly express or process any sort of what I'm going to refer to through this podcast as negative emotions, because there's this belief right now that we need to always look on the bright side of things or surround ourselves with positive energy just 24-7. Absolutely. I think that's a great definition. Do you want to add anything to it, Dr. Spence? I'm going to come from the lens of somebody who has spent my entire career supporting people who have disabling conditions. So not only people with disabling conditions, but the families, the communities, and the support networks. And from my perspective, I definitely feel like there is a pretty significant problem um, with people wanting things to be different or better. So maybe not wanting their kids to have a disability or wanting their life and you know, for, for lots of different reasons. And I also feel in general, most of us and, and to, in full disclosure, myself personally, there's times things are just difficult. Um, friends who are battling cancer or uh, the loss of a loved one or things that happen are, that are normal things in life to your friends or your family. And uh, in general, just having a difficult time, um, relating to others about it. And I know I've been taught certain things to say. Um, Some of that may be based on my gender and my age, but, you know, things like, oh, I'm so sorry, or um, things like, oh, it's going to get better. And I know we're going to talk more about this. um, But in the lens of disability, I think people often just don't know what to say. They don't know what to say to family members. They don't know what to say uh, to people, to an individual themselves. So I think it's just really laden. Um, which is not a great definition, but just my perspective on on this topic in particular. No, absolutely. I really appreciate you both breaking it down. And I appreciate that lens too, Dr. Spence. It's one that I haven't really thought of before. I think that there can be a sense of shame if we have negative feelings regarding being in that kind of community instead of just always making themselves have to feel a certain way, I think. And we'll be talking a little bit about, you know, suppressing emotions and things like that. Um, But with that, I'd like to open it up, you know, what are some other examples of toxic positivity? So for example, what are some statements that people say to others or to themselves, that kind of thing? You know, I know Dr. Spence already used some examples of some statements, but other popular statements that I hear a lot, or I myself may find myself saying as well is, you know, look on the bright side of things. Don't be such a negative Nancy. Um, You know, don't worry, be happy, etc. Absolutely. Yeah, those are really easy ones to that come to mind. And I'm pretty sure I've said those multiple times to people. I think those are fantastic examples. And I will tell you the one that I've been consciously really trying to focus on um, over the last um, several months, actually, and the one that I hear a lot, and I hear this from family members, um, I hear this from individuals who have a disability who have been victims is, I don't have it that bad. You know, there are people, there are people, you know, and whether it's relating to the disability in general or the victimization, whatever may have happened, um, so many people have it so far worse. And 
a lot of us, I think, are just super uncomfortable with just ex expressing or admitting to others that it feels terrible and you're afraid. And I think there's this um, perception, and, and I know I've certainly been guilty of this myself, this perception of, you know, not even allowing yourself to have any feelings about things, um, you know, and, and I, in, for different reasons, I have said that over time and I've really been trying to kind of watch it both with myself uh, with the clients that I support, uh, with my own family members. I mean, and I think it comes from a place of being uh, well-intentioned or, um, you know, maybe wanting to try to help somebody, you know, with perspective and, and, um, but it's, that's what I'm, I'm working on personally. I think it's one that we can all relate to Dr. Spence, definitely. And I, you know, we'll talk a little bit more of like why we think people do this. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And also we're conditioned to do it. So it's, it's not, you know, we have to kind of re-socialize ourselves. So it is, it's kind of an ongoing thing, just like rape culture is something that, you know, we didn't create, but we're part of, and we're just kind of working on that. You know, you talked about victims and I also wanted to ask specifically, what are some statements that people can say specifically to survivors of trauma that are these toxic positivity kind of statements? Again, a lot of the common um, statements that I hear either other individuals say to survivors of trauma or survivors of trauma themselves say to, you know, them is it could have been so much worse. Um, I could have, you know, died or they could have killed me or I hear I'll get over it soon, or you'll get over it soon. Um, everything will work out in the end for you. Those are the most common that come to mind that I hear. I think just to touch on what Jocelyn said, I, you know, and, and some of this, I think is just prevalent in the disability community. So whether you're a person who's providing a service or you're an advocate or you're, um, but there's, there's, I think there's this difficulty with what to do and how to respond, you know? And so by that, I mean, um, do I say to someone with autism, you're someone with autism or you're autistic. And even at the most basic level, there's been a lot of, you know, script flipping in the last year and a half, two years about. So I think there's people that are trying to be sensitive when they're working with someone who's who's been victimized, regardless of what situation occurred. And I think the additional layer in the disability community, you know, we're kind of already struggling with that anyway. And then we add this other layer that we're not really sure how to handle sometimes, whether I'm a family member, I'm a provider. Um, so that this idea about, you know, it's going to get better and this idea about um, it could have, I, I just feel like it, it, it helps people feel better. It could be worse. You know, it could have been this, it could have been, and, and I, I, I hear that so often and I, and, and to take it another step, I hear family members, you know, cause I'm on a lot of forums where families support each other and they communicate this, you know, it's going to get better. It'll be, you know, and, and there's not really a, a response of, oh my goodness, you know, that's, that really must feel awful or that must, you know, kind of acknowledging how the person feels. Right. It sounds like no one, it's, it's not sitting with the person and, and meeting them where they're at. It's almost like 
kind of here, let's move forward. And this is how we can do it in that sense, but not actually allowing that person to have the space to process the emotion, to go through it. So statements like it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Maybe even for survivors, it's like, oh, well, things happen for a reason. And that could be a really toxic statement, but it could also be like, oh, this will make you stronger. Or this made, you know, that kind of thing instead of, you know, actually acknowledging what someone is feeling. I wanted to see if there were in, any other signs of toxic positivity, maybe not just statements. So for example, you know, if someone's just hiding or masking their feelings or shaming those um, who are not being positive, anything like that you want to touch on? I think it's exactly what you just touched base on, Emily. We tend to hide our true feelings, maybe because we feel guilty or ashamed of them. We don't want to burden others. Um, And just going back to statements, what Dr. Spence mentioned earlier, you know, I too find myself guilty of diminishing a bad day or negative experience that I may have just by telling myself, you know, Jocelyn, you don't gain anything, anything from having a bad mood or stop being so dramatic. Um, You know, you need to be grateful because there are others who are going through worse things. Um, So not allowing myself to fully process um, a bad day or negative emotions because I feel like, oh, if I do that, then I might cause, you know, a friend or family member or my partner to have a bad day as well. I was just thinking about, you know, about this, the idea and the impact of, of shame. And when I think about a lot of the people who I've worked with who have various various disabling conditions, so across a continuum, and I, I you know, I don't know, and I don't feel like it's it's fair or reasonable to say people without disabilities feel more or less shame or their families, but I I feel you know to go back to my lens is I feel like families when these things happen, it's in so incredibly stigmatizing, and I'm I'm sure it is to everyone, but many parents who have. Uh, kids with disabilities already feel this tremendous sense of guilt and, you know, I need to overfunction and I need to make it right and I need to take care. And then when an individual is victimized, uh, male or female, and, and whatever this specific circumstance, um, I feel like it it's, it's even more kind of heaping into the pile, if that makes any sense. And they've had a lot of practice, you know, I can, I can do it, I can do it and, you know, kind of running with the sword to help their kid or from my perspective, you know, as supporting a client, you know, and to my own detriment or to their own detriment, you know, and, and I think some of that does have to do, there's a shame component in there. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're perceived as less than by others if you're saying or speaking your truth, because that's not how you're supposed to act. I'm making air quotes. I know we're on a podcast, but that's not how you're supposed to act. <laughs> um, and, and I feel like that's, that's really damaging. And, and it's, it just sets people up to be in a very difficult, untenable position. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you bringing in kind of intersectionality here of victims who have, who also have a disability. That's really important. 
and I can definitely see how they it's how they can compound as you were saying these effects and and also why the snowballing I suppose of toxic positivity can really just kind of go haywire really and speaking of which you know what are the effects of toxic positivity I know that there was actually a study, and if you don't mind, I might just say it really quickly, this particular study. So, so they did this study, the psychological study to see about cortisol levels and cortisol is the stress hormone. And essentially what they did was they had two groups of people. One, they were both watching a very stressful thing, right? Something that was really stressful and heightened cortisol levels. But they told one group, to suppress their emotions and not show any. And they told the other group, you know, just watch this and, and go through the motions. And they actually found that those who suppressed their emotions and were told to do so actually had higher levels of cortisol. So I wanted to kind of touch about, touch on this a little bit of what are the effects of suppressing your emotions and actually not allowing yourself that space. There are a few effects of toxic positivity. Um, I think one of them that I'll touch on is isolation. And then I would want to sort of dive into the effects of toxic positivity on, you know, survivors of sexual violence in particular. But one of the effects in general is isolation. I sort of touched base on this on my own personal life where I don't want to share, you know, any bad days or any bad emotions that I may be experiencing with others. I kind of isolate those feelings and I keep them to myself. But people tend to isolate themselves from others, especially, you know, if they have already tried to express their emotions to someone who essentially minimize those emotions, um, whether they realize it or not because they may feel that no one wants to be bothered or surrounded by negativity. Um, and they can also isolate themselves because society has essentially taught us, you know, no one likes being around a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer. But other effects, which, you know, is interesting to me as I was doing research on this topic, are shame, suppressed emotions, isolation. And I found this interesting because when I respond to a case or when I'm on scene with a survivor of a sexual assault, I take the time to inform them of common emotions that they may experience, which were those same emotions. It was shame. It was suppressed emotions. Um, it was isolation, um, et cetera. And thinking about it more and diving into it, I feel as though the effects are the same with toxic positivity and common reactions that survivors of sexual assault may experience because, you know, the survivors themselves may not be in a place where they are ready to dive into those emotions or dive into that trauma that they just endured. So they're closing themselves off from experiencing and expressing again, as Dr. Spence said, we're using air quotations, but you can't see as those negative emotions. I think that's really interesting the way that you framed that, Jocelyn, because we know that harboring things like sexual violence and other victimizations have on the long term, 
mental health effects, but also like physical health effects too. And it makes sense that not being able to process emotions and have that space can have similar effects. We also know from research that isn't it about on average seven years before someone actually seeks help after a victimization or something like that? I believe so. And sometimes we even see, you know, it being more um, just being present within our main office in Orlando, we have, you know, individuals who are calling that want to set up an appointment to process trauma that they've experienced 10, 15, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, so I I can see how toxic positivity can kind of play into this a little bit of, you know, not allowing people to have the space to actually be and feel negatively, sometimes. And also, if we are within the people in our lives, kind of saying these things and not meaning to do it, are we really able to tell them, you know, hey, have this space if something happens to you, you can, you know, I'm a safe person to talk to about this. They might kind of be a little too afraid to bring it up, maybe, because they've been conditioned. And also, they they been told to like, hey, you know, kind of brush that aside. And so I can see actually how this could silence people in multiple different ways. And I don't know if you had anything that you wanted to add on that with Dr. Spence. I was just, I'm Rolodexing in my head and thinking about people that I have known and individuals I've supported. And, and I was thinking back to a particular instance with a young woman who at the time was 20 and she was raped and it was pretty well documented the what happened um and and several people knew about what happened for a lot of reasons and in in following along uh with support to the family um her mother really had a a bad time with it and her mother you know so single mother doing the best she could So she felt very bad about the situation. She felt a lot of guilt, which, you know, it was obviously not her fault, had nothing to do, you know, with anything wrong that mom did, but just um, culturally speaking for this young woman, there was a lot of negativity surrounding, um, you know, what had happened and now that she was less than as a person. And it was, it was just, there were so many different things. And I think about in that instance, I remember really clearly sitting in, this was back before the pandemic in the days when you know we did home visits and I was in the home with clients and that was part of how we supported them. And I remember her mom about maybe six months post incident and you know we're working through everything and I remember her mom every time the young lady would want to talk about it which was pretty frequent and you know and I completely under you know I can understand it was really upsetting to her but her mom looked at me and said you got to make her stop perseverating about this you know and so perseveration is a term that we in the autism community are pretty familiar with and the implication or or, or how I interpret interpreted what mom said to me was that this is an autism thing, like make this go away. And I kind of had to tried very gently to say she's traumatized. I mean, this is, this is, you know, maybe part of this is she's saying the same things over and over again, but she is traumatized and she's going to have to have an outlet to, to let 
things out of her to express herself and there needs to be a safe zone around her. So we need to, as part of the treatment recommendations, come up with a way that, you know, your own issues related to this do not supersede her need to seek support or express her, you know, it, it felt terrible. And she was, she was very upset about it. And it, and it, you know, it was just a very difficult, and I was just thinking about that when uh, Jocelyn was speaking. Thank you, Dr. Spence. I thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that story. And just for people, um, cause I actually have never heard of that term perseverating. So could you actually just define it really quickly? So as part of having autism, one of the characteristics of autism um, will be that people get onto a topic or a quote or an item and they will want to see it over and over and over or they'll say it over and over and and it's in so perseveration means a repeated behavior where they you know maybe they do a movement in some way but most often it's uh, linked to I'm very highly fixated on a character in a movie or um, a comic or anime or something like that or they will say something um, using echolele or delayed echolele they'll just repeat it over and many families say oh my goodness, this is so challenging. Um, because they'll literally in a span of, you know, two hours, hear something thousands of times. So part of, I think what was going on was mom was equating the young woman's talking about that to she's perseverating, which is something that happens in the world of autism. But in, in my, you know, being there and giving her feedback was, she's not perseverating about what happened. She's truly upset about what happened. And she's expressing um, that she feels violated and that, you know, her, her, she was expressing how her body felt. And I think she needed to go through what she needed to go through. And so, you know, we were able to talk through that, but it was, you know, there are things that are related to having different kinds of disabilities where I think it might be more challenging for families, care providers, you know, treating treatment providers to go write it off or write something off and say, this is more, uh, this is more, the etiology is about the disability versus this person is, has been traumatized. They're, uh, they're a victim um, and, and they're expressing themselves in the best way they can. I, I really appreciate your perspective on this, Dr. Spence. It, it really is shedding more light onto this topic. And again, intersectionality is so, so important. And for us to understand the individuality of this and how everyone's different and understanding that from that perspective is so, so important to help support everyone in our lives. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that story. It's fascinating. And I hope that they were able to kind of process um, and, and, uh, and go through that. I also wanted to talk about, you know, I think some people may think they are spreading positivity rather than suppressing emotions. Cause you know, we, we talk about how like, we're kind of trained to do this conditioned to do this, I should say. And people think that they might be uplifting someone instead of actually letting someone process. So what is the difference between things like gratitude? We talked a little bit about that and toxic positivity, when does it become toxic? The best way that I think I can explain the difference is when we practice gratitude or when I practice gratitude with my clients is I like to 
emphasize that we're able to practice that because we are acknowledging the pain, the distress, the suffering that we went through in order to go through this healing process and in order to get to the goal that we set that we wanted to achieve. And the difference between that and toxic positivity is, as you mentioned, with toxic positivity, you don't allow yourself to feel any pain, to feel any um, distress, any negativity at all. So in my personal life, like just a quick example that I can think of that is basic, but it makes the point is that for me, like I'm grateful and I express gratitude that I, you know, obtained both a bachelor's and a master's degree because I, till this day, can vividly remember just all the stress with juggling multiple part-time, full-time jobs, full-time student, sleepless nights, breakdowns of just crying and feeling like I can't do it, I'm going to give up. Um but I got myself through those programs. So it's, I acknowledge the pain that got me through to the goal that I wanted to achieve. I love that example. You know, we were using the word shame earlier. I didn't hear that at all. I heard like pride, like you were proud of it. And I, and those are kind of like opposite <laughs> feelings, right? So, so I love that example. Um, is this ever, you know, a difficult balance as a counselor, you know, how we can support people and validate their emotions without having them get stuck, so to speak. I, I know that there's like this idea of rumination, for example. So is that ever kind of a difficult balance of validating someone's emotions and also at the same time, not allowing, well, encouraging them to not ruminate on negative emotions. And again, air quotes here. I find this question interesting in my own personal life, because as a counselor and speaking on a counselor perspective, at least with my clients, I don't find it to be difficult. um, Because I make myself aware that this is probably like the first time that they will be able to be in an environment where they can just truly express everything that they are feeling, that they are experiencing. And I know it takes time to get there. I have to provide a safe space. I have to kind of work with them and letting them know that we are going on their time whenever they are ready. Um, letting them know that we're human and it's normal to not always be perfect. And also, you know, practicing active listening, validating, and in a sense, kind of challenging them as well, because they would still want to practice that suppressing and keeping things, you know, to themselves, even though they have already made progress with you. And, you know, I know we touched about this when we were discussing ideas about this podcast. And, you know, I mentioned to you, Emily, and that when it comes to doing counseling sessions with my clients, like the first couple of sessions, you know, I, when I noticed that they refer to their sexual assault as, you know, an incident or the thing that occurred, or, you know, I, the first couple of sessions, I let it slide, but I, 
in a sense, repeat what they are saying to me, you know, just to understand, you want to essentially, you know, get to a point where you're comfortable of speaking about your sexual assault. So I physically say it. Um, And throughout the sessions, they become comfortable saying it as well. But in my own personal life, for whatever reason, as Dr. Spence, like said, as well, we tend to practice and our culprits of toxic positivity. So it's while I can work with my clients on bringing them to, you know, gratitude and genuine optimism to myself doing research on this podcast, I'm like, wow, why do I myself not practice this? And instead I find myself practicing toxic positivity in my own personal life. I just love the whole dialogue that we're having, but I was thinking as Jocelyn was speaking about from, I feel like personally and professionally, which are obviously two different things, you know, because we, we have our personal lives and we have our, whatever our work hat is that to me, this, where does it go from sort of a good space to being negative, you know, and where's that. And I feel like, when people are not feeling heard and whatever, and and that obviously, I feel like that means different things to different people. And when you have become the victim of a violent sexual assault, of a violent assault of any kind, um, and you're not able to be heard, you know, so the words you're using or the way you're saying it may not be how everyone else understands it, but you want to be heard in some way. Um, And I feel like, when that starts to degrade, there becomes a problem. So whether it's the example that I just gave, which is the mom felt like she was being perseverative or she was obsessing over, you know, so it was less content and more ritual and doing something. So the young lady wasn't feeling heard and she became more, um, emphatic, you know, she got started getting visibly upset. And and I was trying to kind of think of the sequence of that. And I feel like when people are not being heard, I think either they may get upset, or they may get angry. um, And then they just retreat, you know, and depending on who they're interacting with. um, So I feel like it's this balance of having, you know, and, and Jocelyn's just talking about, you know, and I've thought of working with many clients where, I have to kind of shut some things down. You know, I have to say, okay, we're not going to talk about this topic because it's not related to whatever happened. Um, But then, you know, it's kind of this slippery slope of like also allowing them to feel how they feel. And I feel like it's there. I feel like those, both those components are necessary to take someone and help someone through this process of this is what happened. This, this terrible thing happened and labeling it, but hearing people in the way they need to be heard, you know, labeling it and then, you know, letting them feel that way. And then I think comes more, you know, the, the more end game of, you know, psychoeducational or therapeutic intervention, which is here's what I'm going to do, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Here's what I'm going to do instead. Here's what I'm going to do when I have these thoughts, but I, I feel like those have to be present. And, and uh, I think it's so difficult because if, you know, Emily, if I'm talking to you about what things make you feel heard and validated or Jocelyn or for me, or if I talk in my personal life to my partner, there's things that for my partner will make my partner feel heard. 
And I've, you know, spent a lot of time understanding that, obviously. And so when we deal with a client, you know, it's very difficult, you know, to, to get to quickly know that per, you know, establish therapeutic rapport. And as we're talking about it, when we were getting ready for this, I was thinking kind of, it was a clear channel, but as we're talking, I'm thinking, wow, this feels like, you know, going over Niagara Falls, you know, it's just. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, yeah, everything that you're saying about, like, there are times where, you know, first of all, I appreciate you kind of bringing up like, okay, so this isn't the topic that we're talking about. We're talking about this particular thing because rumination definitely can, you start thinking of all negative things. And that's just how the human brain works. When you think of a negative situation, our brain is accessing a part of memory where we think of other negative stuff. So obviously we don't want to spiral, right? But we also want to validate at the same time. So I appreciate kind of the complicated nature of this, but this idea that you brought up of if, when the person isn't being heard or feels like they're not being heard, that's where it kind of crosses that line. And I also appreciate you acknowledging the individuality of what that can look like. And I think that that's something that we can learn about ourselves and also our relationships too, right? And it can be changing, you know, there's different times uh, when we feel heard and when we don't feel heard, right? I was just going to say to to that end too, you know, if, if I'm interacting with someone who's male or female, or I'm out interacting with someone who's 20 versus someone who's 60, I feel like there's, there's all these other complexities that come to it based on your gender, your sexual identification, uh, and your age. I mean, I am, you know, I'm a 53 year old woman. So I have, generationally some perspectives about things that, you know, 30 year olds, 20 year olds, you know, and some of this is socially influenced. Some of this is by my family of origin, but the complexity in each individual case, you know, I work with a lot of people with autism, but I have to treat every person in what they need you know, what, what is their pathway? And that's also with these other variables coming into play. And, you know, in the disability community, there's, you know, we want to cookie cut a lot of people. There's some good people out there too, but I feel like there's this, we want a cookie cutter. And so all people with autism, this is what you do. I mean, if you're a victim advocate and the client has ought to do this and, we can't one approach certain, you know, as I know, Jocelyn, I'm sure I know we talked about this when we were prepping and we can't one approach anybody, you know, regardless if it's a male, a female, a person who's transgender, whatever, whatever the case may be, it's, it's so individual um, and where they're at, you know, and when Jocelyn was speaking kind of where they are and that and regardless of time span, you know, where they are at. You know, I'd like to really come back to why we do these things. Why do we practice this? So why do you think that we do practice things like toxic positivity? And why do you think we say toxic positive statements to ourselves and others? You know, I know I mentioned it earlier before, but in a sense, I just feel like it's what we have been taught by society or what society has normalized. And, you know, I mentioned before when we were planning this, it comes down to 
you know, many of the times it was, well, you have to be grateful for what you have because there are other children out there, other families who are struggling to get by, who don't have a roof over their head. Um, And then now, especially with, you know, all the younger kids out there having access to phones, to tablets, to social media, it comes down to, you know, social media influence as well of displaying a perfect life. Yeah. Not, not wanting to, yeah, just, just sharing. We're able to kind of line veto our life for lack of better term, kind of this idea of we can put out there what we feel most comfortable putting out there. And what people most, most of what I'm seeing is putting out the positive vibes and the positive things out there instead of the negative parts to it. And then, you know, what do you think the effects are now that we're kind of going on this um, route? You know, what do you think the effects are for people who see that on social media, see their friends, only the positive stuff? This is, I feel, such a, a big issue, and I know one that we've, between our ourselves, have discussed. Um, and I feel both personally and professionally that if when you're seeing things in social media, obviously, you know, we're all educated folks, and we know that social media is largely not true. I mean, it's it's filters and light and perspective, and somebody who's been willing to take eight thousand pictures to get one good one, and you know, to go back to kind of why we do things, you know, I think people in general want to project their best self. They want to, you know, they want everyone around them. And I think this is a normal, you know, I would like my friends and family to think I'm a good person. I'd like to think I'm a good person. And, you know, some of that when we're posting and we're doing those things is motivated by that. And, you know, we were joking earlier, you know, you know, I don't see people posting up. I I made a terrible choice today or I, you know, I see people posting up, they're eating in a nice place or they got a nice outfit or they got an accolade or they got a promotion or they got, you know, the, the good stuff. And, and sometimes I see people, you know, medical issue or problem, but I have never in my life, not that I spend tons of time trolling social media, um, I have never seen anyone put up, um, I was raped and this is what I did about it or um, a family member or another person who's in a therapeutic alliance to say, um, this thing happened and and this is what's going on. And I think it's so, it's so stigmatized. And I think in general, you know, I can only speak for myself, but sometimes I think people just really don't know what to say and truly want to help and truly feel terrible, but they really don't know what to say. And, and kind of if everyone else out there in, you know, Instagram land or Twitter sphere, whatever, all those, I, again, obviously I'm 53, so I don't even know everything that's out there, um, you know, is out there making people look this false perfectionist, false, perfect life. And you think, well, I'm the only one, you know, and, and it's to go back to shame. You know, I think people just feel this sense of shame as if I'm not good enough. I don't look right. I don't act right. I don't, you know, and I, I think it's really debilitating, you know, and now with the pandemic and we're in these little silos and if all you're doing is looking at, you know, somebody went out and took a beautiful picture of a blade of grass. Oh, I'm, I'm somehow not as good because I did, you know, and it's like that person was bored out of their mind and nobody's working because it's the pandemic. And I also want to like 
touch base on the social media aspect, you know, as Dr. Spence said, we, you know, focus on only sharing the good part of our lives and not the bad parts. And it comes from, you know, shame and from guilt, but, you know, thinking about what Dr. Spence was saying, there's that other, um, aspect of, you know, people don't want to be vulnerable and share on social media, because then it comes down to, you know, comments that I hear people say, like multiple times, like, oh, why are they sharing this? That's personal, they need to keep that to themselves. Or, you know, they're just doing this to like, draw attention to themselves, they're seeking attention, or, you know, like, in general, Obviously, we've seen it when Mother's Day, Father's Day rolls around, birthdays, like, you know, they make this huge post and it's like, well, what's the point of that? Like their mom or their dad isn't even on social media, they won't be able to see that they should just keep it to themselves. So, you know, we are very contradicting on what we expect from social media and what we want to see on social media. That is such a good point, Jocelyn. And Another thing that I was thinking of while we were talking about, like, why we think people are, we practice toxic positivity and talking about just in general, how we want to put our face forward, uh, the best of us, right? I think definitely there's this idea of cognitive dissonance, right? This idea of that we don't, you know, well, I want to be seen as a good person, right? Or I have the perfect life or, and things like that. But the truth is we're we're complicated and everyone is, and it kind of just is uncomfortable to think that, you know, the person that seems to have a perfect life sometimes makes bad choices, but that's, that's, you know, quote unquote, bad choices, I should say. Um, But that's how it is. And so kind of being able to just sit with the uncomfortableness, I think is so important as we talk about this, because that sense of shame is just silencing so many people. Do you think there's a generational gap here too, as in regards to social media that you want to touch on? Kind of commenting on the generational gap in terms of if there is one with toxic positivity and if you think that there's things are changing with new generations or things like that. Yeah. Um, again, going back and referencing the meeting that, you know, we did to plan this podcast and this topic, um, you know, I want Dr. Spence to talk a little bit more about the example she gave, but what she said really stuck with me that, you know, um, older generations had this toughen up attitude, Um, you know, life is never easy. Um, You got to roll with the punches. So I feel like with older generations, and I've seen it like with my older clients as well, you know, it's hard to break that barrier because what they learned is don't talk about it like keep it to yourself. Um, So it's making them, you know, realize that it's okay to speak about these things. Um, You know, it's normal. And with generations now, you know, I feel as though it's now normalized to speak on what you find offensive to what you don't, you know, like, but kind of keep it positive. So it's very different, but at the end of the day, you can see that it's still focused on 
don't share the negative, um, only keep to the positive. And as Dr. Spence touched too, you have to be aware of, you know, sexual orientation of their cultural background, because, you know, myself, my parents are Mexican and going into the Hispanic community with my other like colleagues who are bilingual advocates, our struggle right now is also working with the Hispanic community to make them realize like in our culture, mental illness doesn't exist. Like you're making it up. So it's having people realize that no, like mental health is a thing. It's important. It's normal. Um, So there's just a lot of different, I guess, generational and cultural and different demographic gaps and struggles and obstacles. That's, that's such a good point. I, I literally just got goosebumps, Jocelyn, when you were talking about going into, you know, being someone of Mexican descent and Hispanic culture in, in general, and, and this is not to lob anything negative. Um, I did a presentation this morning, and one of the topics um, is talking about diagnosis and people with having autism or mental health. And there were four studies we were citing as part of this presentation. And culturally speaking, I'll just give a snippet of when when there are two studies in particular that I reviewed that compared people, moms who are black, moms who are Hispanic and moms who are white. And when they received a diagnosis of autism or some other difficulty with their child. And so the moms who were white were kind of like, oh, fantastic. Let's go get services. Moms who were black responded, I've been asking for help for two or three years. No one listened to me and they were angry. Hispanic moms were immediately guilty, immediately panicked, immediately felt stigmatized. And I think it's so interesting when you when you think about that in context. And so the cultural piece, I feel, is super important, but also to kind of circle back to the generational. So if I, you know, myself, and I've disclosed that I'm an ancient fossil, um, and, you know, in comparison to Gen Zers, you know, I have family members in my immediate, you know, I have some, some babies, and they're 20, and they're 21 and 22. And the way they perceive discussing things that are difficult or uncomfortable is so different than the way I was taught. And my family of origin, I I think they're pretty fantastic. I love them. And I don't think it's that they were trying to do me a disservice, um, but I was taught you keep it together. You put on your best face, you don't complain. And, you know, I'll I'll give an example, um, you know, rub some dirt in it. You keep on going. You don't, you you do not need to sit back and and feel sorry for yourself. And, And that I don't think was because they're bad people. I think that was in my parents' generation, that was just how you did it. And I think as a woman, um, there's another layer to that um, where there's a little more pressure to keep it together. And, you know, I, I just think it's really complex. I do too. And the more we're talking about it, the more things are like running through my mind as I'm, you know, processing this too and relating it to my own life. And, there was something that you kind of touched on Jocelyn about how, yeah. So obviously there's this generational gap, but I think you're right about how younger people are still trying to 
bring awareness to maybe negative things, but in a positive way. And I hear a lot of people like my peers say things like, well, I want to spread positivity. I, I want to be the positive person on the internet because the internet's so negative and Reddit and all this stuff. And I just kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit and put that into the context of COVID because COVID is such a stressful time. And I wanted to ask kind of, do you think there is like this toxic positivity in regards to coping with COVID, this idea that we're all kind of going through this at the same time, we shouldn't be, you know, always, you know, sitting with the disappointments of this. And, you know, it's, it's a lot longer than people thought it would be that kind of thing. So do you have any comments about toxic positivity in, in that kind of context? Honestly, what comes to mind that I myself have, you know, said to myself is just, again, going back to, well, yeah, it sucks that I haven't been able to travel or take any vacations um, or that, you know, I had to adapt work-wise to our new protocol. And I validate that with, well, I should be lucky because at least I haven't, you know, experienced COVID or I haven't fallen victim to COVID. Um, There are other people who have, you know, been positive, who have gotten COVID, who ended up in the hospital, who died, um, friends whose family members passed away because of COVID. So to me, it's, oh, yes, we're, you know, enclosed in our house, um, can't really travel, but at least I haven't experienced COVID. Like I've been healthy. I think what I was thinking in my head, and I feel like there's been kind of stages of COVID. So I feel like in the beginning, a lot, there was a lot of denial, you know, just everyone, all of us, right? Because nobody wanted to believe that this terrible thing is happening. And and for people, um, I travel for my job and I'm used to interacting with people. And by nature of what I do, it's obviously very challenging to do many of the things I do electronically. I mean, we've all had to kind of figure it out. Um, But I feel like in the beginning, there was sort of this, um, it was kind of acceptable um, and encouraged, you know, was everyone to go, oh, this is, you know, a bunch of hooey or this is this or, you know, kind of joke about it. And I think that was sort of a collective nobody really wanted to believe this is going to be around for a while and this sucks and it's going to suck. And I think so there was, and then we got into lockdown phase and then people started being affected by financially affected, personally affected. Um, I, I have friends that lost parents. Um, I know plenty of people that had COVID and got very sick. Um, So then I feel like there was sort of a phase where people were, it became sort of catastrophic response. Um, And I saw both sides of responding to that. Some people, I saw people attacked because they were speaking their truth or talking about it, or I saw people, you know, minimizing it, you know, 
minimizing what was happening. And I feel like, you know, coming up into the fall, it seemed, it just from my perspective, it seems people seem a little more willing to acknowledge what's actually happening. But, it, you know, by this time, it's been going on nearly a year. And I think it's just, to me, it strikes me as interesting that, nor, you know, normal human behavior is when things are difficult, we, we want to go, la, I'm covering my ears, la, 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 it's not happening. And I think that's a, a just a response we have to things, you know, and in, in tying kind of back to the topic, it's it's a response we have and people do it in different ways. If, if I just pretend it's not happening, it goes away, you know, sort of my frontal lobe and I'm going to put it over here. It, it's over here. And I feel like the way people have responded to COVID has been a lot has been very similar to that. If That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's such a good representation of toxic positivity, to be honest, of this idea of we don't want to, it is kind of human nature to set that negative, whatever aside within ourselves and with other people too. And so with that, we talked a lot about, you know, what that can look like. We also talked a lot about the effects that it can have on people. So with that, I wonder, you know, what can we say instead? So can we give some examples of changing toxic positive statements into perhaps like affirmations? Yeah. Um, thinking, you know, about my role with VSC, one of my responsibilities is to answer the helpline during the week 24 seven and thinking about calls of you know, individuals who call in a state of crisis, and I can hear that they are crying, and they're apologizing for crying, you know, um, they're trying to have themselves stop. So instead of me, you know, saying like, Oh, don't cry, it's okay, I'm here to help you. Um, I always take the approach of, you don't have to apologize to me, you know, it's okay to cry. Let's take a few minutes to, you know, allow you to do that. I'm right here on the helpline. You know, once you feel like you are ready to begin to ground yourself again, um, let me know and we'll start working on some coping skills. Um, you know, they let me know, okay, I'm ready. We do maybe some breathing exercises. And once they're like, okay, I'm ready to talk, they're able to do so. Um, and then when people, you know, share their stories with me about their trauma, um, you know, instead of saying our go to like, everything's going to be okay. Um, you know, don't worry about it, things will work out. Um, turning that into thank you for sharing that with me. What is it that you are feeling right now or that you need assistance with right now that I can help you with. Um, so just acknowledging, you know, that their feelings are real, how they're feeling about it, what, you know, that you're here to help, that it's okay to feel those negative emotions. And now how are we going to process that? Wow. I just, yeah, the, I'm feeling chills multiple times throughout this. I have to be honest. I feel like incredibly just like hearing, you know, you speak, Jocelyn, to be honest, if I called the helpline and you answered and all of our advocates are rock stars, of course, I just wanted to validate and just say, or acknowledge rather, like I would feel very safe and it feels healthy almost this idea of like, you know, don't apologize, take a minute, however long that is, and then sit with that 
that just feels like a lot healthier than swallowing it and then trying to do a coping like skill right away. I love that you talked about, you know, let's, that's okay. You know, this is normal. Like how validating would that be? I don't know if you had any examples, Dr. Spence, of changing toxic uh, positive statements to affirmations or something like that that you wanted to share. I was just thinking, and, and again, for me, I'm, I'm Rolodexing with different people and situations and, and was reflecting while Jocelyn was speaking. And one of the things that, that for me, over the course of my career, um, I feel like I, I was always kind of trying to monitor myself was to not insert myself you know, so whatever had happened, whether it was, you know, uh, somebody got beat up, whatever, whatever circumstance had occurred, or, you know, we can, we can put anything in there. And I feel like, you know, I have to be cognizant of my own uncomfortableness and like kind of be in the zone, you know, so I need to be in the zone, I need to be myself regulated a bit. And so when someone is in distress, someone is angry, someone is hurt, you know, whatever that is, um, is to me kind of, I focus on and have tried to on like slowing the clock down. So by that, I mean, just me going, oh, you know, so I want that person to know I'm hearing them. And I might not always, you know, sort of understand what's happening, but always kind of trying to clarify by saying, you know, really reflexive kinds of questions like, you, you sound like you are very upset right now, or you, or it sounds like you are really hurting. Um, and I love what Jocelyn said about sometimes, you know, people need to cry or sometimes people need to yell. I have interacted with people that just need to get, do what they need to do. And I need to stay calm and not react to that, not respond, not go, Oh, you need to settle down or you need to, you know, which, in again, you know, in disability community, knock it off. Don't, you know, you're, we, we, we're not focusing on the right thing. And I think it's sort of, people are well-intentioned, but hearing that person, you know, so slowing down, you know, feeling everything and, and letting that person know. And I love how Jocelyn described it, you know, let that person know whatever you're feeling is okay. And I'm not here, you know, and in whatever way I need to say that to a client. And sometimes it's being quiet. Sometimes it's holding their hand. Sometimes it's letting them rock back and, you know, whatever that is, but just hearing them and acknowledging it and not putting, um, not putting a label on it. I feel like we just, we want to, we want to, to make ourselves, feel. we want to say, oh, you know, like I'm the best therapist ever. I'm this or that. We want to label it and, and kind of show it to the person, you know, and it's not necessary. It's not, you know, and I, I really appreciate the dialogue we've been having, you know, and Jocelyn saying, and I think this is so important of the person is entitled to feel it and needs to feel it. You know, so checking yourself, you know, an old back in the day, we call that checking yourself at the door. You got to leave your, um, you know, and people, I think, get into a mentality of like superhero, you know, and and I know many people and they're really well intentioned and they're amazing therapists, but they're in that superhero. You know, you can you can hear their cape flapping behind them. Right. So that's not what that's it's not what this is about. It's not at least as I understand it, it's supposed to be. It's not the best way to help people, in my opinion. I love what you said about they're entitled to feel it. 
Absolutely. I love that statement. They're entitled and they should feel it and they need to feel it. So, you know, what would you say to someone who is being affected by toxic positive statements from loved ones specifically? And then what would you say to someone who may be saying these statements to themselves? So I guess it's a two-part question. So how would you kind of support someone who is receiving these uh, toxic positive statements from their loved ones? What would you say to them? I think I like to answer this question both ways. You know, if someone is receiving it from their loved ones, it takes time. It's never going to be easy, but you need to work, you know, with that individual in this sense, in my role, work with my client to build healthy boundaries. Um, You know, letting them know if the support or the feedback that you're getting from a loved one or from a support system just doesn't seem to be helping you, you know, make them aware of it. They may not be aware of it. Um, Let them know, you know, I know that maybe eventually I would, I'm going to heal, but you can't just tell me to feel okay, or um, don't worry about it. Uh, You know, okay, just because you told me not to worry about it's no longer in my head. I'm, I'm fine, worry free. (laughs) Um, So, you know, getting them to feel comfortable enough to for lack of better words, call out that loved one that's only giving them positive, you know, statements. Um, And then also I work a lot with, you know, the helpline where I get calls from parents, from friends, from partners who are calling on behalf of, you know, a survivor. And either they are expressing frustration um, because they feel as though, you know, the survivor isn't taking the steps that they need to in order to heal. Um, And it's exactly as Dr. Spence said, they are coming from a good spot because they have their superhero cap on and they really want to help this person because they care deeply for it, deeply for them. Um, But it's making, you know, them realize that we need to work on their time, that, you know, yes, maybe counseling will help or a support group will help, but they can't force that survivor to do it. They, the survivor needs to come to the time where they realize that, you know, they want the help and they want the, you know, assistance and reach out for themselves. Um, Because especially focusing on sexual violence, they've had their power in a sense, taken away from them. So if everyone else is doing everything for them around them, um, it's not a bad thing. But then again, they still don't have power to decide what they want to do now, you know, in their healing process. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece to this too, is that the power and control, as, as we all know, and I've said it multiple times on this podcast, is that sexual violence And violence in general is kind of about this like power and control dynamic. And so when we aren't allowing people to feel their feelings or we're not allowing them to take it in their own time of the healing journey, even if we are well-intentioned, we are in a sense taking away that power again. And like Dr. Spence said, they're entitled to those feelings 
and they're entitled to their healing journey and what that timeline looks like. And so I love the statements of, you know, I, you know, I'm here. Uh, what, how can I help support you? And yeah, I think that those are wonderful, you know, tips for people. Um, I also like to acknowledge whenever I talk about boundaries, it's like a passion of mine. I love talking about boundaries. I, I love that. First off, I like to acknowledge that it, it takes practice to set boundaries. So don't feel bad if you, or feel however you'd like, I should say, but don't feel as if like all is lost if you're having a hard time. Uh, setting boundaries. It does take a lot of practice and it is also normal to feel guilty to set one. And I think that it has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, which is like the shame around it and those kinds of things. And, and at the same time, I, I like to kind of frame setting boundaries as communicating how someone can love you. This is how to best love me. And so I always like to highlight that. Yeah. I think that that's a great way to, uh, to talk about this is, is bringing up boundaries for sure. Uh, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to kind of talk about as far as what you would say to someone, Dr. Spence, who is either hearing these toxic positive statements from someone or maybe is saying it to themselves. I, I have most often focused, and I love what you said about boundaries, Emily. I, I love that. And I loved, I loved, and I have communicated this to, to many, many people, um, this idea that, you know, when you set a boundary with people are around you who have previously had poor boundaries, you know, I can put on my, you know, behavioral analysis cap, and there's just always this spike in the, you know, where then it's really super uncomfortable. And so then kind of, we usually go back to the way it was versus pushing through that. And then the behavior kind of comes down a bit. Um, but teaching people to say, and to advocate for themselves and say, that makes me feel angry when you say, keep, you know, rub some dirt in it and move on. That makes me feel sad. That makes me feel less than. And so practicing with that person, if someone is saying something that's minimizing um, or is making a, a toxically positive comment about the circumstance because they're uncomfortable, because it, it doesn't matter. They don't know what to say, but grounding it in let that person know how you feel and how it's affecting you. And that's a, a really, I think is for all of us, we, we, myself included, if we were all just bluntly, the minute anything happens and we're human and, and we're terrible at this, most of us, but to say to someone, this is how this is making me feel, we'd probably have, you know, better relationships and it would be easier and dealing with, you know, physical trauma, sexual trauma would probably be a little easier to navigate. If you could kind of just pull this up and say, you know, that's what you're saying is triggering me or it's making whatever that may be. And when related to the script in your head or when people are kind of, you know, back in the day, you say beating yourself up, you know, you're, you sound like you're really beating yourself up, or it sounds like you're taking a lot of responsibility here for something that happened that you had no, you know, so almost kind of trying to help people with, um, you know, how big is it really, and not that I'm putting my judgment on it, but to say, you know, you're responding to, you know, your perspective on it, you know, to go back to the perspective piece and maybe what they're responding isn't really actual, 
isn't related to what happened. Maybe it's more how somebody says something, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, yeah. Um, I, I do think it's important to, that we reframe when we talk to people about, you know, this is how this is making me feel and kind of doing those I statements. Absolutely. And I do appreciate what you said where it's like, it, it, you know, we talk about like, why do people do this? Um, when we're setting boundaries, it, it kind of, like you mentioned, it doesn't matter what's important. If, you know, if someone is setting a boundary with me, I just want to hear what, you know, how are you feeling and what can I do? Right. That's, that's what's really important. So if someone would like to learn more about toxic positivity um, or need to get support or something like that, what are some resources that you'd like to suggest or where can they start? I would honestly just suggest everything that I personally did to research this topic for this podcast. Um, Simple as you know, I went on YouTube, typed in toxic positivity podcasts, Um, I found a TED talk. So there's actually a lot of material on YouTube about this topic. And, um, you know, even if you do a quick web search, you'll find a lot of articles and a lot of information as well. And then in terms of support, um, you know, not to do a plug. But again, like we have our 24 seven helpline. If someone, you know, needs assistance on maybe getting comfortable with the fact of, you know, how can I, you know, let someone know that when they tell me, don't worry, or things will get better, or, you know, you're, you just keep on focusing on the same thing, like setting a healthy boundary, they can definitely call and reach a live advocate. Um, And then there are other numerous amounts of emotional support helplines, both via phone and text. And, you know, um, that can easily be accessed, whether it's a quick 211 call um, to inquire about that, or again, just giving us a call and we can connect you with those um, additional emotional support helplines. Yeah. And and I love that the, that you brought up an example before Jocelyn about how supporters call sometimes too. And so I just want to say the the hotline is for secondary survivors too. And those are the people who are the supporters of victims who have gone through trauma or survivors who have gone through trauma too. So that helpline is really for anyone, honestly. Um, I don't know if you had any resources you wanted to plug Dr. Spence. But, well, I feel like Jocelyn, what Jocelyn just recommended is fantastic. And, and in many areas, there are different avenues and conduits, but 211 is a fantastic way that in general is going to get you kind of down a route. So regardless of where you are geographically, because, you know, no matter where you're tuning in or you're hearing this, um, there are different resources. So if I think about across the state of Florida, or I think across the United States, there's just different spots where you find. um, So I think having the local, being able to contact and say, you know, here's these three places you can call or check into. Obviously, um, you all are rock stars and everything you do is amazing. And, And I love, you know, when I'm trying to learn about something, I feel like the internet is my friend and I love Googling Ted talks. And I feel, you know, I love that you made that suggestion in that, 
you know, they're often very motivational, but they're also people that are getting on doing TED Talks have done a lot of research. They're in general highly respected in, in, in my experience and knowing people that have done TED Talks, they're highly respected in their field. They know their science, they know the research. Um, they're not there to hype anything. They're there to help you learn and in a concise, you know, 10, 15 minutes or less. And who amongst us does not love to have it poured into our brain? So I think that's fantastic. And for me personally, and when we first started talking about this, um, I wrote down kind of the four I started thinking about, well, what are what are statements that I may make to my family members or to my clients? And um, so this this it all happens for a reason. I feel like for a period of my life, you know, that was a mantra somehow. And that was an acceptable mantra. So I think thinking about when things are bad for any of us, you know, what's your mantra? What's your go to? And I think it's important to kind of start with you because, you know, I, I say to families all the time, I say to parents, you know, you think about it like being on the airplane, you got to put the airbag on you first and get kind of, you need to get it. And this is what I was talking earlier, which I may have not been clear about, you know, and that dial it, get, and then think about your intervention with others, your support of others. But I feel, you know, it's important to just be always learning. And for me, when we really started talking about this, I wrote them down and I was kind of tally tracking. And that one is one, you know, I said it this week, you know, and I said it, it, it came out, it, it jumped out of my mouth. And I thought, that was that I that I'm doing exactly the thing we were gonna and and my motivation was I have a friend who's going through a very difficult time and you know we were kind of trying to process through it and you know but I want to be part of reframing it and and doing a better job of that but I also have to think about it you know for myself and my personal life and my professional life so it's going to be okay it all happens for a reason this will make you stronger and the the it could be worse you know, those four I've been, and I have them on my, on my pad here. And I've, I've been, you know, going around and talking, you know, with the Gen Z people in my life and the older people in my life um, about, you know, and, and it, you know, when you say it to people, they're like, oh gosh, I do that, you know, but then it's like, you can't undo it, you know? So I just feel like being really conscious about it. Um, I think that's a resource, you know, being, being co conscious that that's a thing. I love that. I, I love that you and and kind of all us all kind of realizing that we all do it and accepting that and then maybe just saying, you know what, instead of saying that, can I say this instead and say, you know what, you're right. You know, you absolutely have, are allowed to feel that right now. That's totally fine. What can I do to help? Or that really sucks. I'm so sorry that that happened to you or those kinds of things. Uh, I appreciate you kind of giving exact examples because I think that really drives the the point across because it sounds like on the surface, it sounds like a very positive thing, you know, but really it's, it's it, like we were saying, it can make people feel small. It can make people feel like they have to swallow what they're feeling. And I think we do it to ourselves too. And so kind of give ourselves grace and then give grace to those around us too. Um, I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. But before we do, is there anything else that you would like to address that we may not have covered 
in relation to this topic? I don't think so much addressed, but just reiterating what, you know, Dr. Spence just said, um, I would just like to state for any listener out there who may have realized through this podcast that, you know, they themselves practice toxic positivity, um, that I hope they don't feel bad, guilty, or ashamed about it, or feel like there are horrible support system because we're human. And as we stated myself, you, Emily, you, Dr. Spence, we ourselves practice it and we're making ourselves aware of it as well. Um, So, you know, it takes time. It takes us being aware of, you know, how we practice toxic positivity and, you know, little by little changing it into genuine optimism and to validating others' feelings, um, no matter what those feelings may be. I think just to to go back to, I think it's really important, you know, and Emily, you've alluded to it, to to give yourself grace. And I think that many people just are not even aware that that's possible, you know, and not because they're not smart people, you know, and and there's a lot of reasons for that, but just this idea that, you know, give yourself a break and a lot of, you know, male or female, I think people, the things people say to themselves are always far worse, probably than they hear uh, from others. Um, and I know many people that their internal dialogue and what is going on and what they're telling themselves that other people think or whatever, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's really overwhelming. And I, and I think a lot of folks just don't realize that it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel like I just can't do one more thing. I can't, I can't, you know, engage with whatever that is. And, and, and I love when you say, give yourself grace. I just, I, I like, I like, I think that's a really nice way of saying it. Absolutely. And I think that that's a wonderful place to sign off. So thank you to the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Dr. Spence and Jocelyn for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. It was a pleasure.